women who are moms. I've been there when babies have been born premature and they have died in their mother's arms. I've been there for miscarriages. We had one of our own. Um, and I've been there for the joy of birth. I've been there for every one of my grandkids' births. I was in the delivery room for my first two granddaughters. Um, and so uh, motherhood is an incredible thing. In fact, most little girls, part of their fantasy is getting married and having kids. They play with baby dolls from the time they're, they, they can't talk and they want to hold babies. My, my youngest granddaughter, Charlie May, has one, she has a bunch of dolls, but there's one who is the doll. It's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. But it's, it's the doll. There's something innate. And yet there are some who never get the joy of being moms. Um, I have a sister-in-law who will be 60 next year who's never been married. And so she's become a surrogate. Um, spoil as many kids as you can, great aunt, um, for my grandkids. And I have, a, I have a nephew who's been married about, I think I married him about five years ago. And they've done in vitro. They've done everything they can do. And they still can't get pregnant. And they want a kid so bad. And then I have I adopted grandkids. I have adopted brothers. I have adopted sisters. I have adopted niece. Um, so there's all kinds of way that people become, that women become mothers. But there's still some who never do. And so Mother's Day always becomes, as a pastor, becomes kind of a tension to me because I'm, I'm concerned for the ones who maybe had kids and lost them, or the ones who always wanted children and never had them. And I'm drawn to Anna um, in the book of Luke. And uh, her story is very unique, but I think it is a picture of how every godly woman is to be um, as a mother or as one who's wanted to be a mother or even as one who is a spiritual mother uh, to many. This is, this is the account of Anna. We only have um, about three verses in the Bible about Anna, but they're powerful verses. And so in Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 36, it says this. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. It means she was an old woman, okay? And had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So a couple of things about Anna. Um, she was married for seven years before her husband died. Now, in Israel, in this day, in this custom, um, weddings are arranged. There's no dating. Um, your parents pick who your spouse will be. And most young girls were considered marrying material as soon as they were able to conceive. So some as young as 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, they were considered um, marrying age because they could produce offspring. And in that culture, in that time, in that day, marriage was, it could say it was about companionship, but many times you didn't meet your spouse until your wedding day. Um, everything was arranged for you. And so Anna 
had been married seven years when her husband died. So that's seven years of barrenness. We know that it says that she was married for seven years from her virginity. So for seven years, she could not, for whatever reason, did not conceive. And then her husband dies. And there were three things that a widow, her husband had a brother. The brother's responsibility was to take him, take her as his wife and produce an offspring for his brother, um, a male offspring. That was the goal, to carry on the name. If there was no brother to carry it on, a woman didn't have very many choices. She could be a beggar. She could be a prostitute. Or if she was fortunate enough, she could be a servant in the temple. Anna's um, destiny after the death of her husband was she became a servant in the temple. And we don't know. It says that, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. You cannot find one commentary, and I looked at a lot this week, that can tell you if she had been a widow for 84 years or if she was 84 years old. So the youngest Anna could be right now is 84. The oldest she could be, if she got married and she was 12 and her husband died after seven years, that would be 19. So she would be 103 years old. So somewhere between 84 and 103 is about where Anna is. And her destiny, her purpose in life is fulfilled at this moment in her life. Somewhere between 84 and 103 years old. And before I get into the story of Anna, I just, I, 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 you know, the title of the message is An Incredible Woman Who Was Never a Mom. Um, my heart is grieved at the way motherhood has become almost a bad name in our culture. Um, I, I've talked to my wife about this a lot of times. One of the things that amazes me about motherhood is what happens from the moment labor begins to the moment that girl, that woman, holds that child in their arm for the first time. There's something that happens to a woman when she holds her babies. It's, it's not like holding anybody else's babies. And they, um, you know, my, uh, my, my daughter adopted two kids. And um, their parents lost their rights because of drugs. And um, no matter how drugged out the mom became, she was always trying to clean herself up for the sake of her kids. She wanted her kids. There's something innate in motherhood that draws a woman to her children that nothing can kill. And no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't stop the drugs. She was... She was probably in her late 20s when she lost her kids, and she looked like she was in her late 60s. That's what meth had done to her. Um, and so we live in a time when, when motherhood is considered um, a, a devalued thing. It's more important for a woman to have a career. It's more important for a woman to have authority over a man, and, and really a big part of this is to emasculate men. And, and we've lost the virtue and everything God intended for motherhood. Motherhood is, you know, women have, <clears throat> have been a 
diligent force for the kingdom throughout history. And mothers are the most successful disciple makers and intercessors in history. It's when we look back to great men, and I put three stories in here. There's actually four, but one mom had two incredible sons. When we look back at history and, and great men and what's happened in their lives, most of the time they talk about the influence their mother had on their life as children as opposed to the influence their fathers have. Now some, you know, as, as guys get older, uh, particularly boys versus girls, they, they want to be like their dad, you know, but, but in, their, in their childhood, it is the mother. There's something about the knitting of a heart between a mother and a child that, you know, a six, it doesn't matter if you're a, an 18-year-old mother or you're, a, you know, a 65-year-old and you have kids and grandkids. There's something tied between the heart of a mother and her children that never goes away. It never ends. Dads don't have the same thing. Um, my wife gets so sucked into our kids' lives and so in travail and prayer over our kids. And I'm just, okay, God, you're God. You said this, you do it, let's go. Now, where's dinner? You know, um, whereas she will go into travail, she will constantly say, I'm concerned. We had a granddaughter staying with this weekend, and every time we weren't interacting with her, she's talked to me about, what about this choice? What about that choice? Are you sure she did this? Are you sure? She I'm saying, let her go. You know, just let her do what she does and let her learn. But there's something about, about moms, and, and these, I'm talking about these three moms real quick in history, Susanna Wesley. Um, she was a mother of 10 children. So, I, you know, Heather's on her way, but, um, <laughs> and David's looking at me with daggers, so I'm not sure what that's all about. Um, but she raised her children. She was a dedicated woman, dedicated to prayer and to the word, and her husband was gone a lot. And so it was just her and the 10 kids. And, and it says that she spent two hours a day with no husband around and 10 kids, spent two hours a day praying for her children, praying for her family. Now, when you have 10 kids, it's kind of hard to find the secret place. It's kind of hard to find the quiet place. And her life story tells us when she could find no place to get away from her kids, she would take her apron, lift it up and put it over her head, and she would pray while the kids were all around her. But that was her secret place. And because of her prayer, she had two sons. Well, she had 10 kids, but two sons of renown. One is John Wesley, who became, with his brother, who became the head of the Wesleyan movement, which eventually became the Methodists. And... Uh, John Wesley, it's interesting, John Wesley's story, John Wesley was an ordained minister in the Anglican church before he got saved. He had gone through all his training. It wasn't until he was on a ship in a storm, kind of like Paul was in the book of Acts, and they were told, the captain is telling them, it doesn't look good, like we're going to make it. This, I think this ship is going to sink. And there was this family... Of, of a mom and dad and all these kids in the front of the boat and they huddled together and they prayed and they prayed until the storm went away. And John Wesley was so moved by them. He went and wanted to find out who they were and what they were about. And uh, he was so, were Moravians who lived at Hernhut with Count Zinzendorf. And uh, he was so captivated by them. When he got off the boat, he went with them to Hernhut to Zinzendorf, and he says in his testimony that it was at Herrenhut that he encountered God for the first time. 
So even as a minister. And then he had a brother named Charles who was a pretty good songwriter. You know, he wrote over 900 hymns. And, and just so you know that he was the lyricist, for the most part, he was not the composer. Most of his hymns were put to bar songs. So a lot of the melodies we know today in famous hymns were not written in hymnology um, practice. They took drunk songs out of a bar and they put Christian words to them. But he wrote hymns back in the mid-1700s that we still sing today. Hymns like, And Can It Be, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and Come Now, Long Expected Jesus, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Jesus Lover of My Soul, or For a Thousand Tongues to Sing, written hundreds of years ago. And so Susanna's Wesley's prayers had a great impact upon her sons, and her sons in turn had a huge impact upon Christendom. We still have the Free Methodist Church today. We still have Wesleyans today. We still sing hymns today, more, some more than others. Another praying mom was Mary Washington, and the, and the picture that we um, had up on the screen, maybe it's still up there, it is a famous painting of uh, Mary Washington praying over George. And um, if you study his life, George Washington would tell you the person that had the greatest impact on his life was his mother. And the stories go about during the Revolutionary War, he would write letters to his mom talking about the miracles on the battlefield, how men would be in front of him, point blank range, fire a rifle at him, and there would be a hole in his cape, but no hole in his body. Just so many stories on how he escaped, um, you know, time after time that, that his horses would get shot out from under him and die, but he would never get shot. And he, his, he would write letters and say, Mother, I know it's your prayers that have protected me. And the prayers of this woman. Now, I've been to Mount Vernon. I've been to George Washington's home. I've been to the museum. Um, there's a lot of people that wonder about just how Christian he was because of his involvement in Freemasonry. Um, but I think history records truthfully, that this man was a man of God who put great faith in prayer and believed it was his mother's prayers that changed his life. And then a woman we don't hear much about, Moro Graham. What a name, Moro. Um, she had this little boy named Billy. And um, she prayed this boy um, into being an evangelist. And at the end of his life, uh, he had led nearly 3 million people to Christ, and he had preached over 80 million people. Just from the prayers of a mom, of a little hick boy in the backwoods of uh, North Carolina. So I think one of Satan's main strategies has been to destroy women. And, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons I think so, and this is Rick's opinion, but I think it's biblical, if we go back to the garden and you go back and after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit, they've found themselves to be naked, God has, you know, sacrificed an animal, has made clothing for them. He pronounces something over each one of them. He talks about Adam is going to have to toil with the earth for the rest of his days. But he says of Eve, he said, and your seed... The heel of your seed will bruise the head of the serpent, the seed of woman. Jesus is the only one born of the seed of woman. 
So all the way back in the garden, God said, Satan is going to have to deal with the seed of a woman. And I think that's why he wants to destroy everything he can about womanhood. Because without moms, there's no kids. And without kids, then there's nobody to be born, to be raised, to continue the story of Jesus. And so his plan has been to devalue, to minimize womanhood and motherhood. Everything we hear in our culture today is about the battle for women to be equal with men. And we just need to know that's not the way God intended it. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And whenever we try and do something the way it's not supposed to be, everything else around it blows up. And we are where we are today because of this. We are in, you know, the, the, the fights over abortion. Abortion is not about the baby. It's about the woman. It's about women's rights. And so we're, we're at this place. And so the Lord wants us to see and to evaluate people and to value them as, as he does because we set our standards to determine the worth of somebody um, you know, by focusing on their appearance, their achievements, their performance. The Bible says, you know, when, when God told Samuel that David was to be the king of Israel, you know, he had looked at all the other brothers. And God said, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, the achievements, but God looks at the heart. Paul said when he wrote the church at Corinth, he says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, which means we only regard them according to what's in their heart. And so we come to this woman, Anna. She has been married. She's a widow. For seven years, she couldn't get pregnant. She has no offspring. She has no family to take her in. She has one of three choices, become a beggar, become a prostitute, or hopefully get a job in the temple. And she's brought into the temple. And so for the time of her husband's death until the, the writing of this account, whether she's been in the temple 84 years or whether she's been in the temple, you know, however many years after her husband died, we don't know. But she was brought into the temple. And her job in the temple was she was of the tribe of Asher. And it tells us that she fasted and prayed. So it's a, she was called a prophetess from the tribe of Asher. A couple things I want us to look at. First of all, Asher, um, according to Deuteronomy, it says, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze as your days, so shall your strength be. Um, one of the interesting things about this verse, just a little side note, where it says he should, and let him dip his foot in oil. Um, Nelson Rockefeller, before he established all his wealth, he was doing investments in oil, and he read this scripture, and he went and found on the map where the tribe of Asher inherited its land when it was divided out. And it says Asher will dip his foot in oil, and Rockefeller went in and discovered oil where the tribe of Asher was, and much of his wealth came from that oil discovery. So the Bible made Rockefeller rich. Just, just a little side note. Hannah literally means in the Old Testament, um, it means it's, it's Anna in the New Testament, Hannah in the Old Testament. It's the same word. 
and um, just put an H at each end, and you have Hannah. And uh, so it means to bend down or stoop in kindness, to find favor, and to show favor. So as a prophetess, this is an interesting thing. We don't have many records of women being given a title of prophet in Scripture. So she's a widow. She's in the temple. Now, understand some things about women. Women had no allowed to even be on in Jewish culture. When they came to the temple, they were not allowed to even be on the floor where the men were. They had to go to an upper balcony. They had to be separated from the men. Women were not taught how to read. Women were never allowed to touch the scroll. They were never allowed to, to open the, the scroll of the Torah. So for Anna to be a prophetess, um, she probably was not literate. Now, maybe Simeon taught her to read. We don't know. But if she was like all other women, all of her servants in the temple, she didn't know how to read, and she wasn't allowed to touch the scrolls anyway. She wasn't allowed to be in the position where the scrolls were. And yet, and yet, she had to have a knowledge of Scripture in order to speak the word of the Lord, to prophesy. To prophesy literally means to speak in representation of the Lord to the people. So we have a woman who's in the temple who has no position. She's recognized as a prophetess. For her to be able to speak the word of God, um, she probably had a really good memory. She was an auditory learner. She heard the word. She was in there a lot of years. You hear, and, and they didn't have the whole Bible like we have. They had the Pentateuch, and they read the Pentateuch over and over and over and over again in the temple. And she heard it over and over and over again. So she knew the word of God. She committed it to her mind and to her heart. And um, <clears throat> we just have to assume why she was a, called a prophetess because the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere how she got that title. But Luke, who is an intelligent man, who is a doctor, who's a physician, who wrote not only the book of Luke, but he wrote the book of Acts as well, Luke is a very astute man, so he would not put the title of prophetess on Anna if it were not so, and he wouldn't do it if there wasn't something to substantiate the position, the authority of prophetess. Israel was built upon the law and the prophets. So for Luke to, to uh, um, assess and to say that she is a prophetess is a powerful thing. And so God would speak through Anna in the temple, and we don't know how that took place. We know that she fasted and prayed. We don't know if she stood at the balcony and prophesied. We don't know if she one-on-one -on -one went to the priest and prophesied. We just know that however she did it, Anna had a reputation. Anna was known as a prophetess. Now, in the Old Testament, a lot of prophets were not prophets like Elijah or like Elisha. They were, they were, a lot of them were musicians who prophesied upon instruments. It says in 1 Samuel 10, 5, And after that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. So it could very well be that she was considered a prophetess because after she heard the word of God, 
day in and day out, after she fasted and prayed day in and day out, the outpouring of what she heard and what she did was songs to the Lord. And it could quite possibly be she was just in the temple singing songs to the Lord out of what she did, out of her heart, out of what come out of her prayer session. We don't know. We did, there were other prophet, prophetesses in Scripture. One of them wasn't a very good person. Her name was Jezebel, and uh, she proclaimed herself to be a prophetess. No, nobody said, oh, there's Jezebel the prophetess. She said, I'm a prophetess of Baal. And... and um, in fact, it says in Revelation 2.20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So that that's hers um, who prophesied. And then we're told in Acts 21.9 that Philip had four daughters um, who prophesied. And again, we don't know if they were singers and they prophesied in singing. We don't know if they walked around the streets prophesying. We just know the Bible. Again, this is Luke writing, by the way. So Luke writes and tells us Anna is a prophetess. Luke writes the book of Acts, and he tells us the daughters of Philip prophesy. So we know this. She's a prophetess. We also know she's old. She's a senior citizen. Um, and again, we don't know if she was 103 or if she was 84. So she was either <clears throat> a really um, old 84 or a really young 103. I don't know. But... She exemplified, I believe, the qualities that um, Paul talks about when he writes to Titus. Um, he gives Paul Titus these instructions about what an elder should be, and also about how older women are to mentor, excuse me, younger women. This is what he says: Older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So her prophetic anointing was untainted by the spirit of the age, which was displayed by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin just made up stuff as they went along. They took the law, but they always took and they twisted the law to make it say something. And Anna was not that type of person. She, her anointed ministry during her later years is a great example to older women. One of the reasons also we know that she is um, a prophetess is because of what she says when Jesus shows up in the temple, which we'll get to in just a second. So... You know, her anointing ministry, there's always ministry for the sensitive, obedient, and the pure. You know, older women in our community are great examples to the younger women. I, you know, Delia's not here today because her um, drains under her house have broken or backed up something. They're leaking water in the house, so she has a son-in-law for Mother's Day who's coming to crawl under her house and uh, see what he can do to fix it. But I love Delia's story because, you know, Delia was 15 years old when she got married. Just came, he swept her off her feet, said, let's go get married. She says, Mom, I'm getting married. She married him, and they, they took off, and they lived on, on Dalton Street, um, you know, right behind the pawn shop. And, and she came to the Lord pretty quickly after they got married. 
And her husband used to mock her and scoff her and do everything about her, her faith. He set up his garage to be a sports bar, and he would have all the men from the neighborhood come around, and they would watch all the sports and get drunk in the garage. But Delia, day in and day out, for 43 years, prayed for her husband. And a few months before he died, he gave his heart to the Lord. That's, that's something that older women need to teach younger women, to persevere, to not give up. There, was, there could have been some time where she just said, God, I give up on him. But she didn't, no matter what he did. And, and the interesting thing is God used his cancer because she'd have to drive him twice a day down to USC to get his treatments. And he couldn't drive, so he'd sit in the car and she would play teaching series on the radio and he couldn't turn it off and in listening to those he gave his heart to the Lord so God used his sickness to answer her prayers and but her prayer never was get him saved and take him from me but he did so when it comes to you don't turn and worship the Lord there is no retirement you know you, you don't get to you don't turn a certain age and go okay I'm done ministering you're going to minister as long as you live, as long as you have breath. And so we're all equipped to, to serve God, however, in whatever capacity, according to our gifts. We're not to measure ourselves against anybody else. You know, there was one Anna. There will never be another Anna. There was one Delia. There will never be another Delia. But every one of us is unique in what God has called us to do. So we also, so she was old. She was a widow. We know she was a widow. You know, and she had this experience. The, the Old Testament, she had these promises to stand upon. In Isaiah 68, 5, it says that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitations. And Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. So throughout her widowhood, even to her old age, I don't think Anna ever considered herself husbandless. I don't think that was ever an issue because she believed the word of God. She believed that God was her husband and that God would take care of her. So throughout her long widowhood, she was unwearying and unwavering in her devotion to God. She trusted God and her gray, hound, her gray hair was her crown of glory. And I'm assuming she had gray hair, okay? I, I don't know, but just from experience. Oh, <laughs> Janice said she didn't have kids, so she probably didn't have gray hair. But, uh, yeah, and, and so Anna devoted herself continually to attendance, night and day services of the temple. It says she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now, there is so much you can read into that short sentence. What does that mean? Did she fast and pray every day? Did she, when everybody else was in bed, was she up in the temple praying? Um, we, we do know this, that um, there are different times in the day that the rabbis go to pray, even into the middle of the night. And it could very well be whenever there was the call to prayer, she got up with the rabbi and she went and she prayed while he prayed. And, um, but she willingly chose to live a fasted lifestyle. She willingly chose her entire life to dedicate her life to two things, fasting and prayer, day and night. Not 
she didn't fast 24 hours a day and pray seven days a week. She would have starved to death. And, but she, was, she fasted and she prayed. And because of this, God rewards her. And this is the one thing I want us to hold on to. Just as it was with Delia 43 years later, Anna got the reward of her fasting and her praying 84 years either 84 years after she's a widow or she's 84 years old. But she, and, and we don't, every Jew prayed for Messiah to come. I mean, that was a big prayer for Israel. Send Messiah, we need Messiah to come. We need to be set free from the tyranny of Rome. We need to have the word of God fulfilled so that Messiah can establish his kingdom and we can rule and with him. Every Jew prayed that prayer. The Jews, the Orthodox religious Jews in Israel and, and down in the Wilshire district, all those who are part of the very religious synagogues, they still pray for Messiah to come. They're still waiting, believing for Messiah. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple when he's eight days old. They take him there to be circumcised. They come into the temple and as they walk in, <clears throat> Simeon, who is an old man as well, we don't know how old he is, but this is what it says, what Luke tells us about Simeon. And the Holy Spirit, this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here's an old guy who's waited a long time too, but he had a promise Anna didn't have. Simeon had a promise, and maybe he told Anna this, and Anna got all excited, and that's, she became a prophetess because the Holy Spirit that was on Simeon came on her. But if Simeon told Anna, look it, I just want to tell you, we're going to see Messiah. God has promised me through the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, Pentecost hasn't come yet, God has promised me through the Holy Spirit that I'm going to see Messiah before I die. So it had to be for Anna. As she was getting older, she saw Simeon getting older too. She had to know that time was drawing close for Messiah to show up. And so the Spirit of God brought Simeon to the temple at just the right moment. Mary and Joseph walk in with the baby. Simeon walks in. Simeon blessed God. Now, you just have to picture this scene. Mary and Joseph didn't walk in. Mary didn't say, hi, Simeon, I'm Mary. I don't know if you know this, but an angel came to me, and I conceived this baby by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, you know, he's my husband, but he's not the boy's father. The boy's Messiah, and so we're bringing him here to circumcise him. None of that conversation took place. Mary and Joseph walked through the door with an 8-year-old baby. Remember, they've been on a donkey journey. Eight days. They've been on a donkey journey. Baby born in a stable, and they walk into the temple when Simeon walks in and he goes, here he is. Here's Messiah. Here's the one God promised I would see. And, uh, and then he prophesies over the baby. He says this child is, is going to be raised to the destiny of the rise and fall of Israel is going to be on this baby. So Anna is serving day and night. She we have to assume from the story, she is there at the same time. 
She sees this baby. She's gazing upon Jesus. She's recognizing Simeon has said, this is Messiah. The prophecy has been fulfilled. The promise to, to, to Simeon has been fulfilled. And, and so Anna, she, she begins to prophesy. Listen to what she says. Go back to, to the opening verse. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. At that moment, it says... Anna had the revelation by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was Messiah, and she told everybody for the rest of her life that came into the temple that this Messiah had come. So Anna lived her life serving God, but she also lived her life honoring Simeon. They're in the same temple. He's the boss man. He's, he's, he's the rabbi. He's the guy that God has said, you're going to see Messiah before you die. And so their destiny together, God fashioned their heart. And there's three areas that Simeon had to honor Anna. So she's honoring Simeon. But understand, God had to honor, Simeon had to honor Anna in order for her to have a valid ministry in the temple. Otherwise, everybody would have, they'd taken her out and stoned her. They, they would have taken her out and killed her right away for doing things only men could do, saying things that only rabbis were allowed to say. She was a prophetess in the temple for year after year after year after year. So there's some things Simeon had to do to validate Anna's ministry in the temple. So first of all, he had to verbally contend for her honor. So anybody, remember... He's just the rabbi in the temple in Jerusalem. There is the priest of the, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they made all the decisions that came to punishing people according to the law, even unto death. And so he had to contend for Anna in front of the Sanhedrin to say, look, it, yes, she's a woman. Yes, she knows the word of God. Yes, she's prophesying. But Simeon had such authority that, that he had to offer words of affirmations that she would be received by everybody in the temple. And understand that, that there were those that, you know, Anna prophesied in the temple. They had to embrace her words. Um, he had to contend for her honor in the temple. So I believe Anna regularly heard Simeon's affirmation of her position to other people in the temple. Secondly, he recognized the value of her ministry. Remember, she's a widow, Widows have no worth. If you don't have a son or a brother-in-law to come and take care of you, you're again, either you're a slave, you're a prostitute, or you're a beggar. So she really doesn't have a lot of worth. But he never, we don't find any place in Scripture where he ever presents Anna as anything less than who she is and actually presents her in a position of honor. Otherwise, she would not have been respected nor accepted in the temple. She prophesied with dignity, whether it was a song she would sing, whether it was a word she would give, however she operated in the temple, Simeon honored her with dignity, and she had dignity in the temple because he gave her place to do it, and he protected her from anything that we brought against her. And finally, he had to leave her, lead her spiritually. Remember, she's not allowed to pick up the scrolls. She probably doesn't know how to read. So who taught her? 
who taught her the things of the Lord, who taught her the word of God, who taught her the things that God said prophetically. Simeon and Simeon alone. So Simeon contended for her to give her place to do. He basically, besides, Jesus, besides God being her husband, Simeon was the man in her life. He demonstrated lifestyle choices to help cultivate her decision to not only wait for Messiah, but recognize when that little baby came into the temple, she knew also it was Messiah, and she made sure everybody else who came in the temple after that, as long as she lived, and we don't know how long she lived, that they knew Messiah had showed up. So one of the greatest gifts that Simeon gave Anna, I believe, is one of the great gifts that we are giving to women in the church today, and that is the place to teach, the place to lead in worship, the place to be honored as those who are representatives, prophetic representatives of God. And so, as we review Anna's life, here's what we know about this woman who never had the privilege of being a mom. She was dedicated to the memorization and the proclamation of God's word. Otherwise, there's no other way she could know it. She was frequently found in the house of the Lord night and day, fasting and praying. Her life was defined by God's presence. She was given the great gift of beholding Jesus. If, I just want you to think about that for a moment. Because besides Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin, who birthed John the Baptist, because John the Baptist did a little somersault in her tummy, um, when Mary showed up with Jesus in her tummy, Elizabeth knew Messiah was in the belly of Mary. Besides Mary, Joseph, and Elizabeth, it is only Simeon and Anna who know that Jesus is Messiah until he begins his ministry at age 30. So that's quite an honor. That's quite a privilege God gave these two people. And he gave it to Anna, I believe, because of her faithfulness to pray for Messiah day and night with fastings and prayer. And the same holds true today. Those who share in Anna's attributes are also granted the blessing of seeing the Lord. Um, not, in the, not in the same physical way, although we may see him return. Um, but definitely in the spiritual way. I just encourage moms, brothers, I mean moms and sisters, aunts, grandmas, don't ever stop praying for the kids in your life. Whether they are children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbors, don't ever stop whoever God puts on your heart to pray for. Pray until. Pray until. We love our grandkids and we love the fact that every one of our grandkids has been raised to know the Lord. But we, we continue to pray for them daily for the things we believe God's called them to. We don't say, God, we believe you called them to this. We say, God, we ask that you guide their steps into the calling and destiny that you put in them before they were formed in their mother's womb. Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. That's a pretty strong statement about us. Husbands and children should be a simian to their wife and their mother. Verbally contend for her honor. Affirm the value of her ministry. Lead as a husband. 
and learn from her spiritually as a child. And so I think if, if any woman, whether you're a mother or not, wants to pick a, a woman, I think there's two women in the Bible. There's a lot of great women in the Bible. Jochebed, the mother of Moses, what an incredible story. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, what an incredible story. Hannah, I mean Anna, the mother of no one. But there's two women in the Bible that I think if every mom, every woman would attain to be, it would be Anna, who had no children, and Mary of Bethany, who as far as we know, had no children either. But Mary of Bethany was the one who desired the better thing. When Martha was busy working and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and Martha said, Jesus, I'm doing all the work, make her help me. And Jesus said, Martha, 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 you've worried about so many things. Mary has desired the better thing. And Mary and Bethany knew what a passionate love affair with Jesus was all about and how it would shape her destiny and purpose. Anna knew the same thing. So if women want to model your life after somebody in the Bible, here's two women who never had babies that we know of. We're pretty sure Mary and Bethany never got married. She and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus lived together. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the Anna anointing. God, we thank you for the women who uh, are mothers and who are not mothers, but who have been given a destiny to pray into the destiny of the lives of those you've entrusted to their care or to the realm of influence. I pray for moms here today that they will never, ever stop praying for their children. God, that they won't spend their time telling you what they want their child to be. They will instead ask you, how they are to speak into their child's life so their child becomes who you made them to be. God, we pray for every woman who is not a mother, that they would pray even now, God, as, as women would pray for husbands, that they would pray for the, the children of their destiny. One of the things that we have to come to grips with, women may choose to have babies or they may get pregnant for what, uh, a reason other than their, their choosing. Women choose who they want to marry. Women try and choose when they want to have kids. No matter how many choices we have, no matter how many choices a mom has, she never, ever chooses who her child will be. We are given our children by your choice, God, not by ours. Oh, that you knew them before they were knit together in the mother's womb. You had a purpose and a destiny for them that only that mom, that only that dad could achieve and accomplishing in the life of that child. I pray, God, that every mother will remember that. The child that you call your own, the children you call your own, you didn't choose them. God chose them for you. And so, Father, we ask that we walk, that, that moms and women will walk and the dignity and honor of motherhood, of womanhood, to honor and glorify you in all that they say and do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right. <clears throat> it's noon on the dot. I know. So now you all go take your moms or your wives or whoever out to lunch or barbecue for them or go home and make tacos for them if that's what they want.
Joseph and Mary being the only.